If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I feel like I'm louder than normal. Open to that classic Mother's Day text, 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, it's not a Mother's Day text. This is our next text, okay, for our Dearest Place on Earth series. This is part five of this series where we're exploring biblical church membership. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 5 with our time together this morning. We're just going to go ahead and read the whole uh, chapter, okay? I'm going to read out the New American Standard Bible. I told the early service. I come and go from the New American Standard. If you want to follow that translation, there's no need to go buy another Bible. If you have the Bible app, uh, NASB is one of the free ones that you could download. Or one of my favorite apps is called Literal Word. You can find in your phone's app store. It's just the New American Standard, and that's free as well. But it will also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would, have be, would be removed from your midst." For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In 1817, an eyewitness recalled Brother Lancaster, a member of Palton Baptist Church in Hancock County, Georgia, rendered himself obnoxious to discipline by allowing the young people at his house to dance at his daughter's wedding. The dancers conducted themselves with decorum, and Lancaster saw no harm in celebrating the occasion with fiddling and dancing. The church saw the matter differently. On conference day, after singing and prayer, the ecclesiastical court was opened. The Reverend Jesse Mercer, the pastor of said church, presiding as moderator. A large crowd attended, some for and some against Lancaster. Mercer introduced the case to the congregation, explained the rules of the judiciary, and alienated the reasons why fiddling and dancing should be considered immoral. He urged the church to settle the vexed question of dancing once and for all. 
Mercer, president of Georgia Baptist Convention from 1822 to 1840, and the namesake for Mercer University in Macon, gained fame as a pastor, preacher, and denominational leader. His ability to manage, manage discipline proceedings was reputedly without equal. He rarely failed to carry his point, and the Lancaster trial was no exception. Lancaster rose from his seat and admitted the accusation was true. But never until now have I been prepared to confess its guilt, he said. Mercer's learned and lucid address convinced him that he was a transgressor. Normally at this point in the trial, the offender would have requested forgiveness and the church would have granted it. But now the accused turned accuser. And some of the members egged him on. Let him go on, let him go on. Mercer thought Lancaster out of order but agreed to allow it. Let us have a thorough winnowing of the wheat and get rid of the chaff, said Mercer. Lancaster charged that the church cried out against dancing and fiddling when more serious offenses passed without censure. Turning to the assembled members, he indicted them for Sabbath breaking, partiality, worldliness, and gossiping. The church stigmatized the tunes of $5 fiddles in the cabins of the poor as worldly, Lancaster insinuated, but blessed the notes of the $800 pianos in the mansions of the rich as an innocent recreation. The women of the church, his chief accusers, had refined away their piety, lavishing praise on the frothy discourses of important preachers, but showering contempt on the simple sermons of plain rustic ministers. When Lancaster's courage failed, Mercer encouraged him to continue, saying that it was good that our faults be exposed and that we ought to submit to have them whipped in the proper spirit of charity. The women likewise shouted, go on, go on, we want to know what it is that sticks in your throat. When Lancaster finished, he asked forgiveness for the frolic. Mercer rose in tears, offering prayer that God would make the trial an occasion of gracious outpouring of his spirit of burying all animosity and ill feelings. The church then rose up to greet and shake hands with the offending brother and to sing and rejoice together. And that was the commencement of the most single revival ever had in that church. Beginning in transgression and ending in revival, writes Gregory Wills, the Lancaster trial illustrates the spiritual power of discipline in Baptist piety. The congregation was paramount. Discipline was an affair of the entire church, which sat as a judiciary of Christ with dreadful authority over the moral behavior of the flock. It gathered its moral tribunal for the purpose of purifying the congregation of impiety, and it trusted that the faithful exercise of discipline would result in spiritual blessing, especially revival. According to Baptists like Mercer, a thorough winnowing of the wheat resulted in a harvest of souls and renewed devotion to God. This, is, this story is a fascinating one to me. But curiously, it's not at all that unique in the context of Southern Baptist churches in the 19th century and before. While we look back and believe it to be silly that one would be disciplined for something as seemingly harmless as dancing, we may also look back at the presence of discipline in the church as rather unloving, intrusive, and perhaps arbitrary. To our Baptist forefathers, however, they took church membership seriously. So seriously, that says Wills, to an antebellum Baptist, a church without discipline had little claim to be a church of Christ. 
So seriously did Baptists take membership and discipline that John L. Dagg said during the same time period, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Do we believe that? Not particularly, right? Because even though Annabellum Georgia Baptists took church membership so seriously that they disciplined around 3 or 4% of their members every year, excommunicating between 1% and 2%, while also growing at twice the rate of the population growth. They suffered over time from such a concern with the social order and an overt concern for the politics of this world and a growth in individualism mimicking the culture that little time was left or even desired for biblical church membership and discipline. And you couple this with the revivalism that spread throughout the South, add in the church growth movement of the latter half of the 20th century wherein churches began to adopt the practices of secular businesses, creating an environment where biblical church membership just didn't seem pragmatic enough. And we're left with the modern American churches where the mere mention of discipline sounds foreign, strange, unnecessary, the practices of a bygone era. To our ears... Church discipline sounds very bizarre, doesn't it? (laughs) And let's be honest, very negative and harsh. It seems passe, archaic, legalistic, pharisaical, and intrusive. But could it be that what we think of when we think about church discipline is actually a caricatured straw man and not the real thing? Could it be that church discipline, biblically speaking, is not only positive, but the only loving recourse for people navigating life together as sojourners in a dark world? Could it be that without biblical discipline, church membership really makes little or no sense? Now, before diving into this topic and text, we need to first answer a question that has immediate consequences for how you will view church discipline. And the question is this. What gospel do you believe? What gospel do you believe? Do you believe gospel one? That God is holy, all have sinned, separating us from God, but he sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven? That everyone who believes in Jesus has eternal life, not being justified by works, but by grace alone, and that the gospel therefore only calls for people to simply believe? Or do you believe gospel two? God is holy, all have sinned, separating us from God. But he sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and thus follow the son as king and Lord. That anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life, which begins today and stretches to eternity. That we are not justified by works, but by grace alone, but that the grace that saves is never alone. But that the the gospel therefore calls on us to repent and believe, which then enables us by the indwelling spirit to become both positionally and actively holy and obedient, reconciles us to God and the church, which enables us to walk with his people, reflecting God's character of holiness. Which one do you believe? Because in the first one, while saying nothing wrong is truncated, it's an incomplete gospel. It emphasizes Christ as Savior, while the second emphasizes Christ as Savior and Lord. To the first one, all God really wants is to save you from eternal damnation and is utterly unconcerned with how you live in this world. To the second one, God wants to save you from eternal damnation and desires for you to kill sin 
and pursue Christ-likeness in this world too. To the first one, discipline sounds strange and unnecessary. But in the second, discipline is seen as both a biblical mandate and something done for our good and growth because it believes we should grow in Christ who has enabled us to kill sin and pursue what it means to be truly human before Genesis 3. So discipline is an outflow of the gospel of grace and without discipline, church membership makes exactly zero sense. If we aren't taking responsibility for one another's lives, if we aren't invested in one another enough to help one another kill sin, if we aren't loving enough to see something harming our brother or sister that we've covenanted with and do something about it before it goes further and causes more damage, then membership just has no place whatsoever. But if every text we've looked at in the past four weeks are true, which they are, then this is a natural outflow of biblical church membership. Now, even though we're looking at a case where Paul instructs the gathered church to excommunicate this offender, church discipline is not just throwing folks out of the church. That's the final step. It's, done, it's not done lightly, quickly, or mechanically, and we see that in Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18. And we can categorize discipline in two categories, okay? Formative and corrective, okay? Formative and corrective. Formative discipline is what we're doing right now. Do you know that? And every time we gather to hear the word preach, it's discipline through instruction. Corrective helps correct the disciple through correcting sin. You think of a teacher, Okay, we have a lot of educators in our church. Think of a teacher. A teacher both instructs their pupils, yes, and corrects when they're wrong. Isn't that right? Isn't that true? <laughs> what kind of teacher instructs, then sees their pupil get something wrong and says, oh, well, I'll let them be wrong. That's the gracious thing to do. You know who does that? A bad teacher, <laughs> right? A good teacher corrects because they intend for their pupils to learn and grow. So formative and corrective go together. We need both to make complete disciples. Now, we're limited in our time together, so more can be said than what I will have time to say. Okay? I'm limited by time and ability as a fallible person, but we will lay an important foundation while also dismantling some of the most popular arguments against discipline while we explore the corrective side. So let's get to it. Four points, okay? Number one, discipline is an act of grace. Number one, discipline is an act of grace. Does that sound contradictory? I bet it does. But let's consider what Paul says. You remember, the same fella who wrote Romans and Galatians wrote this text, right? He also wrote it after Galatians. So it's not like he was confused here and got it right later. This Paul does not believe that these instructions are contradictory to anything he writes elsewhere. Plus, the same spirit inspired it all. And the spirit is not confused. So Paul is responding here to a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. And the church is not doing anything about it. It was reported to him by Chloe's people, if you look back in chapter 1, the people who took the letter 
that the Corinthians wrote to Paul, to him, and then when they got there, they kind of just like dumped on him all the jacked up stuff that the church conveniently left out of their letter. And Paul, can you tell, is incredulous. He can't believe it. You see what he says in verse 1? It's actually, it's actually reported to me that there is immorality known to you all that is so weird that even unbelievers think it's gross. And he further can't believe that, verse 2, the church is arrogant about it. They're like boasting about their graciousness and tolerance when Paul says they should instead be acting like there's been a death in the family. Truly, who, you look at the, read chapter 5, who is the direct object of Paul's rebuke here? The offender or the church for their laxity? It's the church. We can fall into the same trap that the Corinthians did. We can think that we're being tolerant, that we are showing forth the grace of God by ignoring sin in ourselves and one another. It can seem loving and gracious to see a brother or sister in ongoing and unrepentant sin and ignore it. And we can even do what the Corinthians did, boast about how awesomely full of grace we are. But a view of grace that gives license to sin is no gospel grace. It's not biblical grace. It's a bastardization of grace. It's a cheap grace. Because the grace that God gives us is not a blank check to sin as much as we please. It's the divine impartation of the Holy Spirit and placement in a community of faith so that we can kill sin. That's grace. It's not gracious to ignore sin. God didn't ignore your sin, did he? He laid it on Christ's perfect shoulders. That's what sin does. The payment was still paid. The judgment was still rendered. It was still meted out. And it was very costly. Christ died to save you from sin. Not just the eternal consequences, but from its slavish bondage in the present. Don't you see? He broke the chain so that you could live a life pursuing sin killing so you could live more like Jesus as you follow him. That doesn't mean you never mess up. That doesn't mean you'll do it perfectly. And discipline doesn't mean coming down on everyone for every ticky-tacky thing either. It means you see someone in danger. Partaking in ongoing and unrepentant sin and going to help them to kill it. But don't you see? Understand, we're not talking about expelling everyone who sins. Then we wouldn't have a church or a pastor. We aren't talking here of being Sherlock Holmes investigators with one another. We're talking about helping one another be faithful and walk in the holiness that God calls us to. We're talking about things that are clearly manifestly sinful according to scripture and only as long as the person refused to repent it's gracious to help one another walk in faithfulness isn't it it's not gracious to turn a blind eye to one another's sin because sin kills i mean let's just take a couple examples from scripture paul asks and answers in romans 6 and you know this text too should we go on sinning that grace may abound do you know what he says May it never be. And doesn't Jude tell his audience that there have been people who have crept in unawares 
in the church who have turned, this is what Jude says, turned grace into license. And then he calls them to purge such teachings and actions. Now comes some of the common arguments against discipline. Are you ready? Didn't Jesus say, you guys know where I'm going with this, don't you? Judge not, lest you be judged. Didn't Jesus say that? And didn't Jesus say, let he who is without sin, what? <laughs> Cast the first stone. Who am I to say anything? I got my own stuff going on. It's not my place to go to a brother or sister and call them on their ongoing sin. It's not my place. See, that's where you're wrong. For one, it is your place. Because Jesus gave authority to do such things to you and the church gathered. Second, you both joined the church. Meaning, you both gave permission to one another to do this. And third, if you just see, you wonder why I hammer on context so much. If you just see those two texts in context that will tell you that those could simply just be a shield for sin or an excuse to not enter into health, healthy discomfort. I mean, think about the context of judge not lest you be judged. It's hypocritical judgment. It's like a serial adulterer telling another serial adulterer to stop being a serial adulterer. That, that's why after that verse, Jesus says to take the log out of your eye before calling the specks in your brothers. So if you say, if you say, as an argument against discipline, I got my own stuff. You, might, you know what my question to you is? Why haven't you dealt with it? Like you... You have ongoing sin in your life that you recognize is wrong and you're ignoring it? Why don't you confess it to a brother or sister and ask them to help you kill it? You're telling me you have a two-by-four sticking out of your face and you're cool with it? Take that junk out and once you do, you have an obligation to help remove the speck from your brother or sister. Now, when Jesus said, let he who is out sin cast the first stone, he's talking about condemning someone. Discipline isn't consigning someone to hell. No one has that power but God. Even when Paul says to remove this fella in excommunication, the church isn't saying the guy is now going to hell. They're saying we can no longer affirm your salvation based on your actions. We just can't affirm it. Plus, Jesus in John 8 was talking about literally executing mob justice on the sinner. Like theocratic stoning to death the offender. We aren't in a theocracy, and the church discipline isn't stoning someone to death, nor is it condemning them to hell. Plus, Jesus tells the woman after that to do what? Go and sin no more. That's grace. And that's the grace of discipline. Some will paint discipline as if it's pharisaical, which tells you they don't understand biblical discipline. I mean, if you want to say you're more gracious than Jesus, who, you know, invented church discipline, and Paul, you should be my guest, 
okay? You be my guest and say you're more gracious than them. But typically, those who say it's pharisaical also have a posture that asks the church, who are you to call out my specks and logs? How dare you judge me this way? Now you tell me what's more pharisaical, helping family and faith kill sin in their lives or telling people that you're so dope, so crushing this Christianity thing that no one can tell you on your sin. Huh? Which one's more pharisaical? Saying you're just crushing this Christianity thing that nobody can call you on your sin. That sounds like a Pharisee to me. The humble, the meek, the lovers of the true gospel acknowledge their planks and welcome those who would lovingly point out the specks. I mean, what's better? A place where everyone is so perfect that they never confess sin or need correction or a place where people confess sin and live trusting in the righteousness of Christ which gives them the freedom to kill sin together and thus has no need to wear a mask. Now, second... Notice that church discipline is a church act, okay? Number two, church discipline is a church act. You notice this in verses three through five and verse 13. Paul tells the church that when they gather, did you see that? When they gather, when they are assembled to put the man out of the church, this tells us many things quickly. For one, we once again have a clear-cut example that church membership is a biblical concept. You note that Paul expects them to assemble, right? He expects them to assemble. He expects them to gather as a church, which he mentions, he uses this language again in chapter 11. This is what churches do. They gather, they assemble, they come together for worship, to observe the ordinances, and to act on Christ's behalf on earth and to get equipped. But second, the fact that the man can be put out of the church must mean that there was some formal entrance and recognition that he was in in the first place, right? How can you be put out if you were never in? Mez McConnell illustrates it like this. He says, I cannot be removed from the Northern California Left-Handed Golfers Association because I have never been a member of such an organization. Now, according to their website, the NCLHGA will remove people from membership for several reasons, like right-handedness, perhaps. But I am in no danger of being subject to such an action. Because you can't kick a person out who is never a member to begin with. Again, all discipline is not removing people from membership, but the fact that the church is given authority by Christ to remove someone, the fact that the church at Corinth is to remove this man must mean that Scripture has in mind church membership with formal entry requirements and recognition of who is in and who is out and requirements for staying in. But you also notice that Paul's instructions aren't to the leaders of the church, are they? You look again at your text. What's he say in verse 3? For I on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, verse 5, Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Does he mention the leaders at all? Does he? No. And you look at Matthew 18, and Jesus lays out this threefold steps where a brother goes to a brother, shows him ongoing sin and why it's wrong and harmful. If this man rejects him, then he takes two or three with him. Then what does he do? Do you remember? He tells it to 
the church. Because discipline is an act for the whole church. Mark Dever says, Our biblical theology may explain church discipline. Our teaching and preaching may instruct about it. Our church leaders may encourage it. But it is only the church that may and must finally enforce discipline. Some have argued against church discipline because they say it leads to abuse or leadership bullying for their agendas. And you know what? That has definitely happened, hasn't it? In many churches, in many different places. 100% that is a danger of discipline. But now, let me ask this, okay? Does the abuse or wrong use of something negate the correct use of that thing? In other words, does the misuse of something automatically make the thing itself bad? Does it? Because it's interesting that we make that argument against discipline, but not against other things in life. Does the abusive husband or dad negate the goodness of marriage and parenting? Does the use of a car by a drunk driver negate the use of cars? Does gluttony negate the use of food? Now, with this next illustration, I'm not trying to make a political argument and, or take a side in this goofballery, but you think about the ever-present debate about gun control, okay? Someone uses a gun to kill innocent people, and the debate comes to the fore again and again and again ad nauseum. If you're someone who is pro-gun and anti-gun legislation, what arguments do you go to first? You say it's not the gun, right? <laughs> is that not the argument we always say? It's not the gun, you guys. It's the misuse of it by bad people. The gun is an inanimate object. It's the heart of the offender that's the problem, not the gun. Well, why don't you apply that to church discipline? It's clearly, I want some feedback here. Is church discipline a biblical concept? Did Vaughn just like pull this junk? Did, did I sneak into your house at night and put this in your Bible? <laughs> no, I did not, okay? It's clearly a biblical concept. Therefore, Christian, you got to do something with it. You just got to. You can dismiss it out of hand if you want. But that really shows that you stand in judgment of Scripture and are picking and choosing what's applicable and good. It's thus not infallible or inerrant or inspired anymore. Then why believe any of it? It's like Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Brad Willer says, we don't get to edit Jesus. It's not up to us to decide which parts of the Bible our congregation should obey and which parts they can ignore. So we trust the power of the Spirit to conform our wills to his word. Has discipline been hijacked and used to abuse and bully? Absolutely. But it, is the problem the concept or the people who used it for their evil ends? So what if instead of rejecting this thing that Jesus created for our good and for the good of the church and to be done in love and we redeem it and we use it the way Jesus and Paul and the other apostles and the Holy Spirit intended. Now you know, 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation, the reformers saw that the way the Catholic Church used and abused discipline. They saw, they saw the church use it to settle scores. They saw them use it to bully people into submission. 
and they even claim to wield the power to damn people to hell. But the reformers, rather than teaching against discipline, saw that it was a biblical command necessary for the life and the health of a church, and so they taught discipline the right way while simultaneously lamenting, which we could do, and rebuking Rome's abuse of it. They showed that you could both lament abuse and practice it in a biblical way, and we're called to do the same. But also consider the fact that it is the responsibility of the whole church. That fact is intended to curb and stop silly accusations and graceless abuse. That's what makes what Jesus says in Matthew 18 so brilliant. If you're trying to use discipline to settle a grudge or to get vengeance on someone, the hope is that the two or three you ask to go with you will not actually go with you but tell you that you're misusing discipline. And if that doesn't happen, then when it gets brought before the whole church, they'll stop it before it goes further. If, if it's just some score settling or if what you're bringing up isn't really a sin but some legalistic additive to Scripture. Jesus put in these fail-safes to prevent abuse of it. The responsibility is corporate. It's, it's on all of us to ensure that we all pursue holiness together. If your brother or sister is actually trying to kill the sin, if, the, if they are repenting, then you help them win the struggle. That's part of Discipline. It isn't this negative thing done to settle some goofy score. It's to take responsibility for one another, for one another's good. It's why Jude says at the end of his epistle, have mercy on some who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. We all participate. We all take care for one another because we are trying to help one another pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. Truly, think about this. If we aren't trying to help one another grow in Christ, what's the point of being a church at all? If we're not trying to help each other grow in Christ-likeness, like, what are we here for? Isn't that why we exist? (laughs) To glorify God, building up the saints, evangelizing the lost? Discipline helps us do all of that. Number three, discipline is for the good of the offender. It's for the good of the offender. You see what Paul says in verse five? This is a hard verse, isn't it? I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Handing him over to Satan. What does that mean? (laughs) Handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh is the hope that the man's sinful inclination will be destroyed. His hope throughout this whole thing is restorative. Paul is hoping this action will lead to the man repenting and ceasing his sinful action. You You just picture what's going on here, okay? It's not like when these apostles would send a letter to a church, they would send 100 copies so that each member had their own copy, right? He'd send one copy, and they would gather together. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. And they would get together, and somebody would stand up, and they'd read it out loud, okay? And you just picture how weird this would have been. <laughs> how I'm, this man is likely there when 
Paul is, when they're, they're reading these words from Paul, and they live in a society that pri- prized honor and despises shame. Some folks would rather die than be shamed. And yet Paul calls him out in front of everyone and declares that he and Jesus are calling for his excommunication. Even that has the hope that the man will repent. Paul's hoping this will be like a type of shock therapy. He does not wish that the man be put out. He wishes for the man to see his error of his ways and repent and stop partaking in the grievous sin. This judgment is tantamount in verse 5 to Jesus treat such a one as a tax collector or pagan. In other words, it's to treat him as if he's not part of the covenant community. Because he's acting contrary to the profession of faith in Christ as Lord and King. Thomas Schreiner says, Paul's hope is that the old Adam, i.e. the power of sin, which rules in the life of the offender, will be dethroned by the church, by the act of church discipline. In other words, the act of discipline will be the means by which the man is aroused from his sin so that he turns in repentance to the Lord. Thereby, he will be saved from God's wrath on the day of the Lord. See, what this man's actions are showing is that he may be self-deceived. He may think he's a Christian, but his behavior betrays his profession. Someone who truly follows the Lord will not see Christ's commands as optional or irrelevant. The man is saying with his life, I don't care what God says. That's what he's saying. So is he a Christian? Paul's essentially saying, we'll find out. Because true Christians don't obey perfectly, but they do actually try to obey. They don't cast off the commands of the Lord they claim to follow. So Dever says this, why did Paul say all this? Because he had come to hate the offender? No, but because that man was deeply deceived, he thought he could be a Christian while deliberately disobeying the Lord. Our lives should back up our profession of faith. We need to love each other. We need to hold each other accountable because all of us, do you agree with me on this? All of us will have times when our flesh wants to go in a different way than what God has revealed in Scripture. Isn't that true? That that is true of me, for sure. Is that true of you too? That's why we need each other. This is an act of mercy. If the man is saved, he'll repent. If he's not, then he'll go and be in the world with the rest of the unbelievers. Essentially, the church is giving the man a choice, Jesus or sin. If he doesn't repent of a clear, obvious, unrepentant sin, he's making his choice clear. You see what he says in verses 6 through 8? He's not calling them to do anything that isn't within their means to do. He's telling them to be what they already are. He says, you are unleavened because Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. So it is within their means to clean out the leaven, which is a metaphor for sin, and draws off, of course, the first Passover in Exodus. Ben Witherington who has a dope scholarly name, says this. Paul could say, be what you are 
because he really believes that they are changed and are capable by the power of God of being what they ought to be. Paul was no utopian ethicist. The imperative is always built on the indicative of what Christ has already done on the cross and what the Spirit has done in the church and in the individual believer. But I mean, if you were, let me ask you this, okay, if you were in danger, wouldn't you want someone to stop you from the danger if it was in their means to stop it? Yes? (laughs) If you were in danger and someone who said they loved you was standing and watching and just stood by, even if it was in their realm to help you, would you conclude they love you? I sure wouldn't. What kind of love is that? That's not love. Okay, truly, if you saw your kid climb up onto the roof because they wanted to do a sweet backflip onto the trampoline, do you say, let's see how this plays out. Somebody nodded their head in the first service. I was too mad. <laughs> do, you, do you say, let's just see what happens. And then you just pat yourself on the back, throw your shoulder out for how much grace you're showing them. If your kid keeps skipping homework, skipping school, skipping meals, skipping baths, spends all their day on their phone while they wolf down Big Macs and Mountain Dews, are you like, I don't want to correct them. Hopefully this will work out though. And then you go brag to other parents about how loving you are. Your kids keep running in the street. Do you say, well, they seem to be having fun. I'll just leave them alone. That's not grace. That's not love at all. That's bad parenting, isn't it? Your avoidance of the discomfort of correcting them is unloving. Grace in those situations would be seeing them do wrong, seeing them in danger of harming themselves, and explaining to them what the right way is, helping them accomplish those healthy ends. Love and grace is forgiving them when they mess up and repent and asking forgiveness when you mess up, but it isn't a blank check to live in such a way that would do damage to them in the short and the long term. It's truly frightening how so many Christians adopt their definitions of love from the world. Ironically, even while they mock the world for its loveless tolerance, but it's just mimicking the same thing. The world believes tolerance of sinfulness is loving. Some Christians believe that ignoring sin in one another is somehow loving. And that love means placation to whatever feels good or right for the individual. That is not biblical love. Victor Masters wrote this in 1902 when Baptists had begun to abandon discipline because it seemed they had embraced sentimentality. This is what he said. He says, sentimentality is an enemy of church discipline. Sentimentality is the love of man divorced from the love of truth. Under the specious guide of broadened sympathies, it cloaks a big lot of hypocrisy and moral decay. The church sentimentalist is so kind to his fellow church member that he's willing to ignore the plain instructions of the book of his faith rather than bring him to account for unchristian conduct. Judge not that ye be not judged, he quotes. But he forgets to quote 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. Don't, do not you judge them that are within, whereas them that are without God judges. 
Biblical love sees someone in danger and cares enough about them to be uncomfortable by having a conversation where they say, brother, sister, I've seen this destructive sin in your life and it's hurting you and it's hurting your church and it's hurting your witness and I want what's best for you and your walk with Christ. Let me help you defeat this. It's wild to think that we would see our brothers and sisters engaged in sin and ignore it thinking we're loving in the way of Christ. But to abstain from discipline on the lowest relational level is to claim that we love better than God loves. God, after all, disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son, according to Hebrews 12. God disciplines his people so that they learn not to rely on themselves and run after other gods, but to seek all and find all in him. Do you just think about the big view of redemptive history? Have you read the Old Testament, how maddening it is that Israel just keeps botching this thing? But do you know what God does? He still loves them. He's long-suffering. He disciplines them, but there's always a remnant in there. Always redemptive hand being extended to them. That's discipline. That's love. Andy Davis says, failure to act is actually selfishness and cowardice in the guise of love. It's really a love of ease and of whitewashed appearance rather than love of God and others. You love your kids. You stop them from harming themselves. You love your brothers and sisters in the church. You'll do the same. Again, remember the aim. The aim is Always, 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 always renewed repentance and therefore renewed fellowship with God and his people. That's always the aim. To put out this faux love that claims to love while ignoring sin or affirming sin rather than abhorring sin and helping one another defeat sin has caused so much damage in the church. It's time that we shed the Disney and country music and Hollywood definitions of love and pursue a biblical love which actually enters discomfort for one another's good so that they will stand before the throne of Christ at the end of their lives and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Fourth and finally, discipline. It's for the good of the church. Notice what Paul says again in verses 6. Through eight, he says that a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. In other words, it's damaging to the church to allow unchecked, unrepentant sin to continue because it will infect the whole thing. If you allow unchecked divisions to go on, for example, guess what will happen? You know, Paul says in Titus, to reject a factitious man... After a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Why does he say that? Because seeing someone being divisive and being like, here, just have what you want so it'll stop, isn't going to end divisiveness in the church, will it? Others will observe that. 
and know they could do that too, right? They know I can get away with this if I just throw the... If, you're, if you teach your kid, every time they throw a tantrum, they'll get their way. Guess what they'll do? Surely they'll reform and never throw a tantrum again, right? Actually, that's like all they'll do. Then their younger siblings will see that it works, and guess what they'll do? The same thing. Unchecked sin... Unchecked, sin spreads through the whole church. It defiles the conscience of weaker believers. It teaches new Christians that sin isn't a big deal and doesn't need to be pushed back against in their lives. Unchecked, unrepentant sin in the church is like putting a drop of black ink into a glass of milk. It's not going to stay static. It's going to darken the whole thing. Plus, think about this. The watching world, do you believe that we're being watched? The world is looking what we're doing. They're going to think we don't even believe what we say we do. They won't see unchecked sin as attractive. (laughs) They'll see the church saying one thing and doing another. And if the church doesn't look different from the world, why would the world want what we have? Why would you want to come here (laughs) if you could just get what we got out there? Wouldn't it be more attractive to see people loving each other in Christ and shedding their posturing and admitting sin and spurring one another on to change lives reflecting their Christ? That's different. That's attractive. But do you see what Paul says in 9 through 13? He tells them (laughs) that the concern of the church ought to be the purity of the church. They're sitting here, and it's so funny that this was written in the first century, because we do this exact thing all the live long day. They're sitting there judging the deeds of the world. And Paul's like, why would I tell you to judge the world? Here's some breaking news. People who aren't Christians, guess what? They act like they're not Christians. Can you imagine? He says, you need to care that Christians aren't acting like Christians. Remember, both Jesus and Paul believe that the church should be distinct from the world. That's why there's church membership (laughs) to begin with. It's declaring that these people are, from the best that we could tell from their profession and lives, Christians following their Lord. Here's Witherington again. He said, For Paul, the Christian society stands over against nature because nature and human nature are fallen. Therefore, clear boundaries must be established between what may seem natural and what is appropriate behavior. Jesus wants the church to look different from the world. That's why, again, bloated membership roles are dangerous. How can a church say someone they never see is walking faithfully and is distinct from the world? How? How does the church know if people on their role that never come to the gathered church haven't left their wives and kids to live with their mistress? Or if a member is living with their partner but they aren't married? Or if they're an alcoholic or drug addict or thief or swindler? You can't. So is it loving to give them assurance where you really can't do such a thing? Is that loving? Because again, 
The local church's power is declaratory. A church does not make someone a citizen of the kingdom, but it does have the responsibility for declaring who does and does not belong to Christ's kingdom like a passport does for your American citizenship. This authority is explicitly given to us by the head of the church, Jesus himself. Because what's happening here is not the church declaring this man in 1 Corinthians 5 to be damned. They have no such power. Rather, this, is, this act is remedial. It's meant to be medicine for the health of the offender and the church as a whole. It is not pronouncing final fate, but a warning of what could be. To take this final difficult step in 1 Corinthians 5 is not to pronounce a person's final condemnation, but to seek to avert it. Now I realize all of this sounds strange and uncomfortable, doesn't it? Admit it. Admit it. <laughs> no one should like the sound of church discipline. It will always be difficult and unpleasant. Gregory Wills says, the wonder is not that Baptists practice discipline on a large scale, but that they practice it at all. But Baptists persevered in church discipline because they believed that dis- discipleship required it. In our day, we are tolerant, expressive individuals with radical autonomy, and we keep each other at arm's length. We say, you have no right to speak into my life, and I won't bother you either. If that's our posture, we don't want the church. We don't want the church. We don't want real community. Not in his biblical form, not in what Jesus envisions for us. Says Albert Moeller, individuals now claim an enormous zone of personal privacy and moral autonomy. The congregation redefined as a mere voluntary association, has no right to intrude into this space. Many congregations have forfeited any responsibility to confront even the most public sins of their members. Consumed with pragmatic methods of church growth and congregational engineering, most churches leave moral matters to the domain of individual conscience. That's so true, isn't it? But don't you see that biblical membership means we're members of one another? So you see that discipline is not negative but positive, not hateful but loving, not severe but gentle, not tolerant but gracious. How can we say we love one another if we don't do everything we can to keep one another from sin that hurts us and our families and our church? How can we say we follow Christ if we throw off his commands? How can we say we want to win the world when we won't protect our witness before the world that we are distinct people set apart by God for Christ's purposes? You know, another objection to discipline is the classic objection to most things that seem different or new, and that's we've never done it this way before. Have you ever heard that one before? Which, I mean, you know, that's not a good argument by itself. You know that, right? (laughs) We've never done it this way. But if we say that about our church and discipline, if we say, you know, First Baptist Church, we've never done it this way before. Guess what? That's not true. I've told you before that I've read every church conference meeting and deacon meeting minutes that I can find. 
Well, that means I read the minutes to the church conferences dating back to 1889, which I still have in my possession. And you know something? You know something? The very first generation of FBC Cordial members took membership very seriously. They disciplined members for false teaching, for immorality, and even for non-attendance. In fact, they would get together at church conference and they would read the membership roll and call it off like they were in elementary school calling off the roll. And those who were frequently absent, they would go get them. They would pursue them. Where you been? <laughs> we missed you, brother. Come back. But you know what else I saw? I saw that when someone they disciplined came back, they would repent and they'd be restored with open arms. They loved each other enough to watch over one another and discipline one another, but also freely forgive one another. In fact, let me just listen to this opening paragraph of the church covenant, the very first church covenant that FBC Cordial adopted. It says, hoping and believing we have experienced the regenerating grace of God and accepting the Lord Jesus as our Savior, we do now solemnly covenant with each other to walk together in brotherly love and do what we can to promote the precious cause of our common Lord that we will exercise a Christian call and watchfulness over each other. Have we ever done things the way we've been talking about today and in previous weeks? You bet. You bet we have. But somewhere along the way, we lost it. That's not unique to us. We may have simply been doing what other churches were doing or what we thought was right at the time or what was most pragmatic or comfortable, but by God's grace, we can return. Not only to the covenant of those who founded FBC Cordial 130 years ago, but to our Baptist forebears, to the reformers, to the early church, and to the vision Jesus and his apostles had and have for the church. Will it be easy? Will it be comfortable? Not even sort of. But Jesus never promised ease, did he? But will it be worth it? Obedience to Christ is always worth it. Let's choose faithfulness. For our good, for our witness, to be a light in the darkness and for God's glory.